looking at verses 8 through 13. You know, there's a question that this text addresses. And the question is this. Why should I remain faithful when life gets difficult? I remember a conversation that I had with a brother in Christ who, as I was visiting at his house, pointed out that the neighbor immediately behind him just put in a brand spanking new swimming pool. And it was really dialed in. He had the Primo grill. He had a pergola. His backyard was beautifully maintained and immaculate. And as he looked at this neighbor, he also looked at the character of that neighbor. And unfortunately, the character of the neighbor wasn't all that swift. The guy partied heavily. And raucous behavior, foul language would often go from his yard into my friend's yard. In his driveway, there were parked two brand new cars, and my neighbor would look at that, and he would say, why does this guy get all of this stuff? I'm faithful to the Lord, and I don't have a fraction of what this guy has. Additionally, the guy was advancing in his company like crazy. You could just see everything working out for this guy coming together for this guy. And my friend was being passed over at work for promotions because of his faith. They used terms like not a team player, that he needed to take on more extra outside work activities with the others. But the translation was he wouldn't go to the strip clubs and do some of the things that some of the others in the workplace would do. And so he was passed over. My friend started lamenting that. And he started wondering, where's the payoff when we're faithful? And that's a valid question. But you know, I think it's a question that's addressed in the text that we're looking into this morning. Because what we must understand is this. This is the reward right here, right now for those who don't serve the Lord, who don't know the Lord. This is as good as it gets. You might even say this is the only heaven that they'll know. For the child of God, often we'll face persecution, testing, suffering, Life can be terribly unpleasant at times. And it seems as though our faith puts us right into the eye of the storm. But understand this. This is as bad as it gets for us. This is the only torment that we'll know. So here's the deal. Do I look and say, hey, life right here, right now, that may last 75 to 95 years, is that worth more to me than an eternity that lasts forever? We're faced with a short-term, 
versus a long-term outlook. And it takes a lot of faith to face that kind of decision. So that's what we want to see as we look into this text this morning. We want to see that it's important, first of all, that we endure suffering for Christ because that is truly worthwhile. Look with me at the eighth verse, and we'll find that evangelism is certainly worth enduring its suffering. In the eighth verse, it says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David, this is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained. Wow. Here's what Paul is saying. Number one, Timothy, as you look at my predicament and, and, and understand, as Paul is writing 2 Timothy, he is chained in a Roman prison in Rome awaiting execution. Now, being chained to a guard was horrible in the first century. When you look at the prison system of the first century, it was deplorable. Often a dungeon, dark and dank, and the smell alone would be just horrendous. And being in chains, shackled to somebody, no privacy. Your dignity, your freedom, completely taken away. And so as Paul writes this to Timothy, what he's saying to him is, look, even though you look at my life and you see what is happening to me now, is it worthwhile? And I say to you, yes. Why is it worthwhile? Because number one, remember Jesus Christ. Did Jesus Christ suffer for us? You read the gospel accounts and you see... Jesus Christ suffering intensely for us. He was beaten, slapped, taken to a cross, crucified. Jesus faced horrible suffering for us and yet remained faithful to the mission that the Father had sent him to do, to come and die on the cross for us. He became obedient to the cross to accomplish our salvation. So what's Paul's point? It's worth it because our great example, Jesus Christ, did that for us. So it's a privilege, it's an honor to suffer for him. Now that viewpoint takes tremendous faith. And it's easy for us to talk about how important that view is and how good that view is when we're sitting in the comfort of a a nice church with padded pews and a heating system that works, and we don't have to fear someone bursting through the door with a machine gun and mowing us down for our faith. But here's the Apostle Paul, chained, awaiting execution. And when he answers the question, is it worthwhile? The answer is yes. Notice the gospel that Paul shares. Verse 8 says, remember Jesus Christ Raised from the dead, descendant of David, this is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. The gospel that he shared was about Jesus. Jesus, the Savior. Remember that name, Jesus. 
is mentioned in the Gospels, even at Jesus' birth, when Joseph was reminded that Mary would give birth to a son, and notice what the angel reveals. You're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. What is associated with the name Jesus? Salvation. So as Paul presented the gospel, it centered around the Savior, Jesus, who came to live among us and ultimately die for us, that he might provide for our salvation. That is the Jesus of our gospel. And listen, when we share the message of Jesus, we're sharing the message of a deliverer. We live in a sin-sick world that needs to be delivered from sin. Jesus is the solution to the issues of this world. Jesus brings about forgiveness for every sin that you've committed. He delivers you from the power of sin in your life. This is the Jesus that we present to others. It was the Jesus that Paul initially rejected through much of his young life, but then converted to believe in Jesus and proclaimed the message of who he is and what he does in the hearts and the lives of others. But understand this. When we share the name of Jesus, there are those who will find it a stumbling block. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, will proclaiming the name of Jesus Find acceptance by all of those around you? Absolutely not. There are some who will find the name of Jesus offensive. On the news this morning before I came in, I saw two men who have served the Lord by sharing the gospel. One imprisoned for multiple years. Why? Because he proclaimed the gospel one shot in Western Africa. Why? Because he proclaimed the gospel. People found the name Jesus offensive. But there they were, sharing the gospel consistently because it is the gospel that delivers men from hell to heaven, from being alienated from God, being adopted by God. And so it's a message that needs to go forth. And throughout the history of the church, there have been those who are willing to stand in the face of hatred and persecution because they are concerned about their fellow man and their need for the gospel. So this is what Paul is reminding Timothy of. We share the gospel, there are at times cost. But weighed against what the gospel does in changing hearts and lives, the cost is well worth it. And that's his reminder. But here's the part I really like in this text. Look at the ninth verse. 
And Paul mentions that he is suffering to the point of being chained like a criminal. But then this sentence right after that, but God's Word is not chained. You know, Satan has often tried to crush the gospel, and he cannot. As a matter of fact, when we look throughout history, during the times of greatest persecution are the times of greatest victory for the gospel. God overcomes. And folks, that's another reason for sharing the gospel. The gospel cannot be chained, and I would rather be a part of the process where God uses me to share that which cannot be chained than to have that self-imposed muzzling of myself for something that is so powerful. That's the outlook that we should have. That's the viewpoint we should accept. Even though man may do his worst, he cannot overcome the plan of God. No one can chain God's word. They may temporarily shut down a servant, but the testimony of that servant goes forth and the gospel goes forth. But then there's a second reason. It's worthwhile to share Christ, not only because the gospel is worth suffering for, but the elect are worth enduring and suffering. Look at what we find as we come to the 10th verse. At verse 10, the scripture says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. What Paul is saying here is this. It's worth suffering for the gospel to see another person come to Christ. Understand the context in which Paul shares this. Paul had been a persecutor of the church. Paul had been one who was engaged in seeing to the death of followers of Jesus Christ. One of the most poignant parts of his testimony is found in the book of Acts chapter 7 where Stephen, a faithful follower of Christ, was being stoned. And where was Paul? Off to the side, holding the cloaks of those who were casting stones so they could more easily hurl their stones. This was Paul before, and God extended him grace. Had he continued in the course that he followed, he would have spent an eternity apart from God in a place called hell. And he recognized that. And I know it's not politically correct to talk about hell, but it's biblically correct. And Paul recognizes that. And so he is willing to suffer if one might come to Christ, his suffering was for those who would find a relationship with God. His suffering was for those who would respond to the gospel. And if that guard chained to him who heard him sharing the gospel as a captive audience turned to Christ and it took prison to put him in that place to where he could share then he was willing to accept that. Now there's a lesson in that for us. 
we should be willing to look at difficult circumstances as an opportunity to share the gospel. You know, one of the things that I've appreciated about Paula as she's gone through the struggles that she's gone through this past year with cancer, the light that she showed in the hospital, and I can say this, she's not here this morning to glare at me for using her as an example. Uh, by the way, she is flying back in this morning from going to uh, Florida where a dear cousin of hers at 43 died of lymphoma. And she went down to minister to the family. They were partnering together as they were going through treatment, and God chose to call him home. But one of the things that I've appreciated about her is the light and the testimony that she gave as we were in the hospital sharing with the nurses, sharing with other patients. As a matter of fact, there are those who call her that just met her for a brief time to find support and encouragement and to hear of hope in God. And that's what we're to do when we're in difficult circumstances, difficult settings. We can view that as an opportunity to share the gospel, to be used of God where we are. This is what Paul was doing. And he did it for the sake of the elect. Now, what does it mean in this text when it says for the sake of the elect? Look, look at how Paul defines them. Verse 10, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The elect are those who will obtain salvation on the basis of Jesus, according to this text. He's not saying about how they're elected. He's not saying anything at all about that. We don't know who will respond to the gospel. We can't know. Our responsibility is not to figure that out. Our responsibility is to share the gospel and let the gospel change hearts and lives as God determines. I liked what one commentator said. He said this, Who are the elect? While the concept of election has generated fierce doctrinal differences, most of these differences come from theological or philosophical points of view, not the Bible itself. In this context, Paul indicated that the elect are those who may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. He makes no claim to know who they are. Their identification falls under the sovereignty of God. For Paul, God authored salvation and commissioned him to spread the word. God knows who will respond. Paul was so sure of God's purpose that he was willing to suffer to see that salvation realized. Isn't that a great statement? We are called to share the gospel with those who need to hear it. Let God sort out what happens. Our responsibility, share the truth. Share the gospel. Go to where there is need. And so that's what Paul did. But then we come into the latter part of this text. And when we come to verse 11 we find that Paul starts to talk about what we have to look forward to. Remember, Paul was suffering. He was in chains. But that's not the end of his story. 
What Paul did was he, he found a hymn from the first century. And he shares the words of this hymn right here in Scripture. So while the hymn wasn't inspired, when it became part of Scripture, the Holy Spirit was saying they got that right, so it is inspired now. And what we find as Paul shares this hymn are some perspectives that have to do with our eternal reward and how that far outweighs our present suffering. So what we want to see in this last part, verses 11 through 13, are four truths about our eternal rewards. Because what Paul does is, from this hymn, he takes four couplets. It's an if-then relationship. If this happens, then this will happen. So that's what he's sharing. And so let's look at what these things have to say. First couplet. God extends eternal life to us because we died with him. Him referring to Christ Jesus. So let's look at this. If we died with him, we will also live with him. Now here's the question. What does it mean that I have died with Jesus? What does that mean? What it's referring to is our union with Christ when by faith we come to the place that we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he is raised again, and that when I come to him and trust him as my Savior to pay for my sin and to give me eternal life, when that happens, I am united with Christ. As a matter of fact, the Scripture describes it as being in Christ. And that is a new reality for me when I place my faith in Him. Not on the basis of things that I've done, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ did for me when He died on the cross. That's how we die with Christ. But here's the paradox. When I die with Christ, I now live with Him. Or literally, in Him. So I'm dying to sin and its penalty over me. And I am now living through Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful truth. And that's something to hang on to in a sin-sick world where everyone is against the things of Christ. We can be for them because we've died to those we live in Christ couple of passages to give us perspective. First of all, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now here's the point. If I have died with Christ and live with him, there's not only that eternal perspective that I will live eternally with him, but there's the perspective of right here, right now, what's going on in my life. I will live for him not only in the future, but I will live for him now. And not in a way to earn my salvation, but out of gratitude. I am grateful for the life that Jesus has given me, so the only decision that makes sense 
is to be grateful and to express my gratitude by the way that I live. I don't know about you, but I would rather have somebody do something out of gratitude than obligation or duty. When I see somebody happy to do something because they appreciate me or something that I've done and they love me and they just want to do it to express thanks, that is meaningful to me. When I ask somebody to do something, they say, all right. Or like a robot, I'm just doing this out of duty. Not nearly as satisfying. You want to please God? Live for Him out of gratitude. Gratitude is a tremendous motivator. And that's what Paul is saying here. I am motivated, I am moved to live for Christ because I was crucified with Him and He lives in me. Additionally, we have this passage in Colossians. Colossians, the earlier part of that third chapter, tells us to set our hearts, our affections, on things above, that is, in heaven. Why? For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Now, this is the long view. I have died to sin and its power over me, but I have eternity to look forward to. And listen, eternity is so much greater than the short time that we're given on this earth. It only makes sense. It only makes sense. We need to understand that if I live just for the present life, if I live just to gratify my sinful urges and desires, it's pleasant for a moment. But what is that in comparison to eternity? I am selling myself short by buying into the things of this world in this time. As believers, we need to understand if I've died with him, I will also live with him. Then we come to the second couplet. We can expect to be rewarded after enduring suffering. Look at verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Now, when we look at reigning with Christ, we have to see that as a reward. Understand this. To a degree, all of us reign with Christ because when we trust Christ as our Savior, we are in him and we have the inheritance of eternal life and being united with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So we're in a very important position by virtue of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and adopting us into the family of God. I have that inheritance, and you do too, when you've trusted Christ as your Savior. That is the inheritance that is based on the work of Jesus Christ that all believers share. But there's another aspect to our inheritance that the Scripture speaks of. And it's not based on Jesus' faithfulness. It's based on my own. 
you understand that positionally we have that place, that inheritance that awaits us when we trust Christ. However, there's another truth that we have to consider in Scripture, and that is this. The way that we will rule with Christ when he returns and he establishes his kingdom on earth for a thousand years, the things that I'll be doing there are dependent on what I do here and now. That is what the scripture refers to as our reward. Now, there are some people who will look at the reward and they'll say, now, wait a minute. Isn't that being self-serving? If I'm all concerned about a reward that I'm going to have when I go to heaven, isn't that sort of self-serving? And doesn't that take the glory off of God and put it on me? And let me answer that with a big no. I want you to understand something. The Scripture speaks quite often of the reward of the faithful. And it makes sense to me. Shouldn't the person who has been faithful serving God denying himself, receive more in the way of responsibility when they appear before God at the judgment seat of Christ to have their life assessed. And then when they reign with Christ during the millennium, doesn't it make more sense for a faithful person to receive more in the way of a reward than the unfaithful? We will be saved but the degree to which we serve with Christ and are given responsibility is dependent on what I do here and now. And that's something that needs to sink in to us as believers. Let me give you some scriptural support for what I'm sharing. In the book of 1 Corinthians, it talks about the judgment seat of Christ, and the 10th verse tells us that no other foundation can be laid other than the foundation which is built upon Christ Jesus. But then it goes on, excuse me, in the 11th verse to say that. It goes on in the 12th verse to say this. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. Now, Understand this, the reward that 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is talking about is something having to do with what we'll be doing during the reign of Christ, okay? That's our reward. However, look at verse 15. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. Now look at the next statement. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Do you catch what's being shared? His eternal salvation isn't contingent upon his performance, but his reward is. Now, those who can be so short-sighted, they might look and say, well, at least I make the cut, you know? At least I slip in under the wire, and I'm in heaven, and that's good enough for me. What a foolish outlook. What a short-sighted outlook. That's like saying, I will take all of the money that I have and I will spend it today and I will worry about what happens later in life whenever it happens. 
foolish. And when later in life comes, there's disappointment. What God is saying is, that shouldn't be. You think and you understand that there are issues concerning your rewards where those rewards can go up. And I'll tell you, at at the end of, of my life, when I appear before the judgment seat of Christ, I don't want to see a pile of ashes that represents all of my time here on earth. I want to see wood, hay, and straw gone. I see gold, silver, and precious stones. And that comes from faithful service and obedience to Christ. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25. The parable of the unfaithful servant. There's a principle that Jesus brings out. You remember the parable. There were three servants. Two of them were wise in their investment. They took money that was left with them and they invested it and brought a return for their master. The third servant sits on it and does nothing with it. And to the two good servants who proved themselves faithful, look at what Jesus says. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Do you catch that? The idea is reward for faithful service. So when this hymn says, if we endure, we shall also reign with him, that's what it's speaking of. Faithfulness and its reward. Now, first two couplets, pretty encouraging, aren't they? We see one couplet that says, hey, if I live for him, I will die. Or I've died, so I live with him. I got that backwards, didn't I? Then it's, if we endure, we will reign with him. Very positive. But then we come to the third one. And notice what it says. If we disown him, he will disown us. Now, there are many people who have become confused by this interpretation. They look at this interpretation and they say, what it's referring to is loss of salvation. If I disown God, then he will disown me. And it makes it appear as though with this interpretation that while I am saved by God's grace, it is my personal performance that keeps me saved. And I would submit to you that that is in essence a work salvation if we subscribe to that interpretation. So what does it mean in this text when it says, if I disown him, he also will disown me? Here's what I believe it refers to, again, reward. In the flow of the context, Paul has introduced reward in verse 12. Look at verse 13, and it says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. You know what faithless means? It means without faith. So if I come to the place where I'm without faith, God remains faithful because why? He cannot disown himself. The same word that's used in verse 12 is used there. God won't disown me even if I am faithless. So what does it mean in this text when it says that God will disown us if we disown him? First, let's talk about what it means to disown him. The word in the original language carries with it the idea of refusing Christ. 
of coming to the place to where we, either through our lifestyle, live in such a manner that we don't reflect who Jesus is, or if we come to the place to where under heavy persecution we have denied Christ to save our own necks. And by the way, this was a huge issue in the first century. Again, easy for me to say, I would never disown Christ. But when you have a sword ready to come down on the back of your neck, or you're told we will torture your family unless you recant, none of us know how we would respond. We don't. But here's the idea. When I disown Christ, he will disown me at the judgment seat when it comes to reward. The things that I've done up to that point that have been good are erased and the reward that I would have gotten in those things I am now disowned from getting the reward that I deserve. That brings me to a place to where I no longer deserve them. Paul talked about this in a few passages where he talks about not wanting to lose his reward for fear that he would lose his reward. What the scripture is warning us about is this. Remaining faithful has a direct relationship with the receiving of that reward that's based on my performance, not on the performance of Christ. And I need to be careful of that. I like what Warren Wiersbe said. One of my favorite pastors and writers is Warren Wiersbe, and he said this, in the great roll call in glory, where medals are given out, we will lose our reward if we disown his name. That's the idea. The picture is that of a game and competing according to the rules. We saw that earlier when it referred to the athlete who had to compete according to the rules to receive the reward. So here we're seeing right in this text that as believers, our motivation for faithful service is indeed that reward. Now, one caveat. Bear this in mind. If you perpetually disown Christ by your lifestyle, in other words, living as though he doesn't exist, or turning away from him, there is still the possibility that you never came to a place where you put your personal faith in Jesus Christ. And you will have no reward because you're not in relationship with him. In the book of Titus, Paul warned this about some false teachers. They claim to know God, but their actions deny or disown him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. There are those who can make a profession of faith, but they've never really come to the place to where they put their faith in Jesus Christ. So understand this. If you live a life that disregards Jesus Christ, 
If you're a believer, denial of reward. But if it's evidence that you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, denial of spiritual life. That's the idea. Look at the final couplet. Glad we don't end on the end of verse 12. Because verse 13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Now this is a powerful statement when we look at it. If I am faithless, God remains faithful. Let me tell you something. When it comes to faith, we can all fall short. We can all have those faith crises where we look at something and we don't trust God. And we're not alone because when I read the Bible, I find that to be the case with so many of the people written about in the Scripture. Abraham's traveling through Egypt, can't trust God to protect him and Sarah, so he lies and says Sarah is his sister rather than his wife. And again and again and again in Scripture, we find great people of the faith who have those moments of failure when it comes to their faith. Peter denies Christ before a servant girl. Lapses in faith. Do you know what I'm thankful for? Where I fail, God succeeds. When I am faithless, and literally, the word in the original language <coughs> means very simply, without faith. It would be a faithful, and a meaning negative. But even in that, we have a faithful God. I am so thankful that my salvation does not rest in my own faithfulness but in the faithfulness of God. I will fail, you will fail, but God remains faithful. And then look at what the last part of that 13th verse says. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful for he cannot disown himself. When we trust Christ, we are united with Christ Something spiritual happens that puts us in relationship with God the Father and with Jesus Christ. And Paul reminds us of this in Ephesians chapter 1. You were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So think about what this is saying. How did I get in Christ? How did I experience that union with Christ? How did I come to the place to where I am in God? Through the gospel of my salvation and believing in the gospel. Not by my works, not by my performance, but by simple faith. And here's what happened when I placed my faith in God, when God said, if you will believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins, rose again, 
and that he will forgive your sins and give you eternal life. If you believe in that, then you are saved. You have the gospel of God's salvation. But more than that happens. When I trust Christ as my Savior, I am indwelled by the Spirit of God. And He is given to me as a seal. Now, what is a seal? In the first century, a seal was something that they would place over a document. And the seal itself could be easily broken, but it was the authority behind that seal that made it what it is. The Spirit of God is given to the child of God. And by the authority and power of God, he is held there by that seal, the promised Holy Spirit. But more than that, look at verse 14. Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now the inheritance spoken of in this text is that eternal inheritance of life. But I want you to notice right at the beginning of the 14th verse, our seal is given to us as earnest money, a deposit guaranteeing that I will see the inheritance that God has promised until the day of redemption. I have become God's own. I am God's possession. Look at the last part of this until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Do you know what Paul is saying in this quotation from the hymn? He cannot disown himself. When I have trusted Christ as my Savior, I am held by the power of God and his faithfulness as his possession. And he can no more deny a relationship with me than he can deny a relationship with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to us as God's guarantee. He is the down payment on what we experience for eternity. So when we look at this passage and we think about what God is saying, I don't know, this is exciting to me. This is something that shares with us the hope that we have on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross when he shed his blood for us. This is what we have to look forward to. Amen? Amen. Amen. You'll never be disowned because God cannot disown himself. This morning we've seen the fact that we will face trials, that we will face difficulty, It's a part of our life while here on earth when we're faithful to Christ. But understand this. This is but for a time. The older you get, you see how quickly this life passes away. You look and you say, wow, life is, you know, the calendar's on turbocharge and it's moving ahead and I can't believe how fast life is going by. When you're in your 20s, you look and you say, man, I got forever, right? I can live in mom and dad's basement forever, you know? 
And then you get to your 30s and 40s, and you say, wow, you know, accelerating. And then your 50s and 60s, and wow, I can't believe, is it, is it 2016 already? You know? Life on planet Earth for us is a vapor, as it's described in Scripture. Here for a moment and then dissipates. But understand this, for the child of God, there's so much more. Doesn't it make sense to live for the so much more rather than the here and now? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father,